Thank you. Actually, it's Marilyn. It will always be Marilyn. And I'm really pleased to be here. I'm a teacher. Um, my background started out by teaching deaf children. You're going to see me sign unless I sit on my hands. They brought me words off bathroom walls. If you understand deafness, you have to draw it, write it, practically show it. Now, I'm this minister's kid. If you grew up in a house like mine, we never talked about anything neck down or thighs up, front or back. I was in a dilemma. I had to teach deaf children. I was neither a sexologist uh, nor a sex therapist, um, but I was very pleased at that particular time to have been in St. Louis where the staff of Masters Jones Johnson's were beginning to teach. Oh, I was expected to marry a minister, which I was for 10 years, so it's a bad habit in my family. Or I should say habit. I learned some good things from it, too. Um, but it presents a lot of issues. The clergy presents, like physicians, I call all of that group in drag. So I'm going to call all of you that. Drag, to me, is a covering. So when you have your white coats on, in my case, when the collar was on, there were all kinds of issues about sexuality um, that a lot of people did not want to face. And then I began to work, as I began to work in the field, um, I began to teach in hospitals, at a time when people were not addressing people's sexual concerns when people had ostomies or spinal cord injuries or heart problems or diabetes. So I got to learn about a lot of things probably you got to learn about in medical school. I didn't know about them. I said, you teach me ostomy, I'll teach you sex. You teach me hearts, I'll teach you sex. I learned a lot of stuff, and actually I'm not an expert. I am an expert about myself. You are an expert about yourself, your sexual thoughts and feelings. But I would like to share with you some information that I learned as I began to move into the area um, working with people in addictions and began to look at my own. I used to come into programs and they wanted me to glitch. I can do it. I have a stick, old minister's kid, a little bit of Lena horn, and lots of wanting to get the crowd to respond because the best way to teach is to have you all say rather than me tell you. So it's going to be an interactive presentation, which is always a challenge for the people way in the back of the room who I like to pick on. I'm listening to you as well. And what happened was I began to go into addiction treatment programs and they wanted me to glitz. And I began to learn I have a bias now. It can dry me out and clean me out. And if you do not address my sexuality issues and my intimacy concerns, I am probably going to relapse. I need to certainly follow 12 steps. I need to learn about addiction. But the real important part has to do with who I am. And sexuality is who I am. My thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and yours. Oh, the sex part, the space between the legs, oh, and you'll know when I talk about it, I will be very clear, is only one small part of sexuality. Sexuality is how I feel about myself, how you feel about yourself, and of course in recovery. It's a long journey of building that self-esteem. When I'm going to talk about sexuality, then because I'm a teacher, it keeps me on track, and you can see where I'm going. You won't get bored if you get tired of me talking. You can look at some things. It's about addressing fear and belief and comfort. Because a lot of people have a lot of fears about sexuality and recovery. Well, shoot, just to have sex clean and sober is real scary to begin with. And then to talk about it and to begin to address issues is particularly scary. There's a lot of fears. And what the biggest fear, if we begin to talk about it, this is going to be a dialogue now, this is not a lecture, the biggest fear, the biggest fear about addressing sexuality issues in recovery, for anybody actually, would be what? What's our biggest fear about talking about sexuality? Our thoughts, our feelings. Biggest fear. You got it. Thank you, sir. You win the condom for the day. Be sure and come and see me. Yes. It is what sexologists give away, you know. All right. Yes, of course, rejection. 
You betcha. And what I learned was about intimacy is if I didn't think of the possibility of rejection, I probably better not be intimate. Probably better not be intimate. Now, intimacy is not just about sex. I'm going to show you eight types of intimacy. So whether you have genital sex or not, whether you have it or not, you need to know about eight types of intimacy. Because people have shown me that whether their genitals work, their brain works. And where is your biggest sex organ, folks? Thank you. Space between the ears, not the space between the legs. And the space between the ears also controls our sexual thoughts, feelings, and how our sex organs operate. So, there's a lot of fear that people have. Now, a lot of people have beliefs about sex. Let's take a look just a minute. How many of you learned your sexual facts from sexologists? Raise your hand. <laughs> Me either. In fact, although there were sexologists, wait a minute, how many of you were around in 1920? Come on. It's okay to say you were around in 1920 because that says you've been experienced sexuality people. All right? 1920, this guy named Alfred Kinsey, he was beginning to do all kinds of things and collecting information. Nobody wanted to hear him. He came out with this landmark scale in 1948 called the Kinsey Scale. Anybody hear about that? Mm, yep, my daddy the minister got it, wraps it in brown paper, puts it in his closet, gives it to me when I become a sexologist. Well, Kinsey Institute. Now, he said an interesting thing. I'm just going to give you one example. See, Alfred Kinsey said in 1920, he said, there are people who have same-sex behavior, opposite-sex behavior, both. Nobody wanted to hear it. Marilyn Volker says they all have parents and they all have families. Now, 1948, he comes out with his Kinsey scale. He says the same thing. He says a lot of things in this, but I, just one point. And nobody wants to believe it in 1948. I was two years old then. Didn't hear about it until later as I became certified. 1981, everybody, because of the virus named HIV, starts to say, so how come there's all these bisexual people? You know, we've been saying it. We've been saying it. Nobody wanted to hear it. So a lot of people did not learn information, as I did not, from sexologists. By the way, we'll take a look. We'll take a check and see a little bit later on where you did learn your information from. Now we get to comfort. Comfort. Why is everybody so uncomfortable about talking about our bodies, particularly genitals, and our feelings, which is the space between the ears? But remember, genitals are connected to the brain. There's a heart in between. And in recovery, that, to me, is the goal. The goal is not about having genital sex. Whether you have genital sex or not, you are still a sexual person. But it is connecting the genitals with the brain and recognizing there is a heart in between. So how come we're so uncomfortable about talking about our sexuality and about sex and feelings? How come? Dialogue. <laughs> how come people are even uncomfortable about talking? Yes, what is it, sir? Yes. And come down here. I like to come in the audience. Yes, sir, what's your name? Jose. <laughs> From Oklahoma. How come you think people are uncomfortable about talking about sex? I think that probably uh, due to, um, it just has been like that for years and years. Thank you. For years and years, we did sex, we didn't talk about it. Thank you very much, Jose. Exactly. We just did it. We had old models. Now, some of you might be uncomfortable when I talk. I do not mean to make you uncomfortable. I do not mean to step on values. I do not mean to step on your belief system. But I have to be clear, at a very short time, and after 20 years of doing this, and particularly the last nine years in working at an AIDS project in Miami, I'd rather you be embarrassed than to get infected or reinfected. I would rather you be uncomfortable than live years of your life not knowing information. 
as I've worked with many couples who've come in 17 years and are afraid to talk about a sexual problem. I would rather your children be embarrassed and uncomfortable if you have them too. I would rather they have the information so that perhaps they would not get into addictive behaviors, as we're going to see. So this is a dance, a dance, and please do not think I'm such a big expert. I struggle with the very same fear, belief, and comfort. I just had time to practice saying it a little bit more. Whenever I do this, I like to start out that we are people first. You are people who are sexual people in recovery. Whether you have sex in terms of genitals or not, you are sexual people in recovery. That doesn't mean some of you might be recovering from sex addiction. But still, all of you are sexual people in recovery, but you are people first. People first, and therefore we have to take a look at issues around sexuality. And I don't know if you weigh in the back and see, because my 43-year-old eyes can't always see as good. There you go. That's it. That's it. But thank goodness, eyes go before genitals, right? Okay, now, let's take a look. <laughs> I like to show this because I like to say that... There are a whole group of people in, if you're with clergy and, and if you belong to churches, it's from the American Lutheran Church, that was my daddy's church, who did a survey, actually, and took a look at why we get so nervous and why we get caught. This is the fear and ignorance cycle. And way before addictions start here, we get caught. We've got cultural taboos. You are going to be asked now in addressing sexuality issues to talk about them. As Jose said, we've never done that before. What does our culture say about talking about sexuality issues? What does it say? Don't. Anybody culture? Has anybody come from a culture that said, listen, you're going to have sexual feelings, and it's normal. It is like hunger feelings. It is like sleeping feelings. It is like bowel and bladder feelings. Sexual feelings are terrific. They're great. It starts in the brain. The brain is the most sexual organ. And guess what? It's terrific. It's great, but it's not an emergency. <laughs> sexual feelings are not an emergency. You look it up. You feel. You look at all your decisions. And you make them wisely, and you talk about them. And if you ever want to talk about them, I will be here to help you look at them, and I will show you all the resources. Now, how many of you got that from your culture? In fact, most cultures who respond to their sexual feelings, what do we call them? Primitive, you got it, right. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody in this room jump and have sex when they have sexual feelings. Remember, it's not an emergency. But if you do not address mine, and or if I repress mine, I probably will fall into addictive or inappropriate behaviors. Now I have an availability of facts. Let's take a look. How many of you, first of all, when you were growing up, got facts from your parents? We're just going to take a little scientific uh, survey. Yeah, many of us did. Many of us did that information. But not the majority. How many of us read books? Books and material. Yeah, a little more, a few little more. Scientific books, medical books, is that where we got them? Some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit more medically oriented books like uh, Esquire, Playboy, etc. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the reading material, I know, Lynn, I know. All right, now, how about, how about things like true romance? Yes, I knew it. I knew it. More vulva people read true romance. Vulva is the outside of the vagina. Vulva. Correct name, not vulva. Like the car, vulva. All right, now. whole lot of women will tell me that they read things like true romance. And I learned that, too. And here's what I got. Remember, this is imprinting. Expectations. One of the biggest things in recovery is to look at my expectations about sex and relationships. My expectations. Because, of course, that's what I was looking for. But it's not all the reality. In true romance, this is what I got expected with. Maybe you did too. See, this is about expectations. All of the penises were described in the following. Just listen. This is expectations. Raw, red, throbbing, angry, leaping, leaping, 
<laughs> no offense, guys, I have yet to meet a leaping penis. Unavailability of that. I imagine some people in the audience would verify that as well. Now, now, all of the vulvas, now mind you, my parents have never said anything to me about sex, so I'm reading this like gospel, all right? All of the vulvas are described as warm, succulent, willing, throbbing. I'm ready. I was one of those women who did not have intercourse until she got married. I was. Because when you look at some of the messages, I learned to do something really different than have sex. I learned to do this. You know this, right? This was come, 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 stop. Yeah, I know that's really, you know that, Jose, right? Real mixed message. Because we didn't have the model that said, listen, Jose, I feel sexual. I just want to flirt. I don't think I'm ready for intercourse, but I really like to flirt. What do you think? Back off, back off, back off, and talk. Now, how come we didn't get that model? That's clear. In fact, that's intimate, as you're going to see. Intimacy is telling my feelings. Telling it clearly, backing off, and then talking about it. Doesn't mean I'm going to get what I want. But we'll get to the intimacy part in a minute. Okay, wait a minute. On my wedding night, was, was I was set up. I don't know about your first sexual experience. Mine was a dud. Not because we were duds. But because the information I was given did not prepare me. Nobody told me about vaginismus. Oh, vaginismus. When the outer third of the vagina clamps shut. Why? I cannot go, right? When you get scared, Muscles get scared. Now, nobody told me penises don't always leap. In fact, they don't always get erect. And nobody told me how to deal with a flaccid penis. Huh? Nobody told me you could get your period on your wedding night. Nobody said you didn't have to have intercourse on your wedding night. Nobody said how you could talk about it. You see, we got set up. Maybe like many of you got set up. And what we did is we decided if we drank, maybe it would help. Did not help. In fact, it made matters worse. We thought we were failures. This was the information about sexuality that we got. Perhaps many of you got several just like that. All right, now how many of you got information from bedrock of solid information? Peers, right? How many of you got that? That right there. Bedrock of solid information. And still today, people believe their peers. No offense. People will believe the star, you know, that cute little tabloid in public, well, in, in whatever supermarket, more than they would believe Gemma. I know. Because they believe star. More people will believe their peers. In fact, how many of you have teenagers? How many of you? Just a little survey. Yeah. Yes, the teenagers believe the best as I go into school for 20 years. Their friends, other teenagers, parents and counselors and physicians come right about here. Okay? Which means we need to be teaching peers. All right. Now, we have words. In order for us to look at issues in recovery about sexuality, we have to face words. This is real tough. I have a physician and his wife now that I'm working with, and he came in and he was, was, what he said is, I come too soon. Well, what he was talking about was rapid ejaculation, not rapid, rapid, rapid. We used to call it premature ejaculation. Isn't that a terrible word? Who wants to be called premature? There are ways to deal with it, though. There are lots of ways to deal with that. And for many men in recovery, rapid ejaculation is a very important issue. Now, guess how he felt? Guess how we felt in 12 years, rapid ejaculating. How do you feel? I'm going to ask penis people first, okay? <laughs> By the way, I need to clarify. Why do I say penis people involve the people? It wasn't my idea. It was my son's idea. He's 18. He's in the Navy. When he was about three or four after prayers every night, he was trying to get clear on gender. Daddy's a boy. He's got a penis. Right. Mommy's a girl. She's got a vulva. Right. 
Daddy's a penis person, Mama's a vulva person, Grandma's a vulva person, Grandpa's a penis person. It got real embarrassing when he went to Sears to say, you're a penis person, but that was, that was talking about learning now. And people would look at me and I'd say, he's got the gender correct. But we're gonna talk to penis people. How would you feel, how would you feel if you had, how would you feel if you had an erection problem or rapid ejaculation? Penis people give me feelings. Inadequate. Inadequate. Inferior. Any more? Inferior. Anymore. Angry. Thank you. What's behind anger? What's behind anger? Always something. Thank you, fear. Always something. You'll see my anger. Oh, you will see my anger. But behind it is something much more scary. How else would you feel? Anything else? Worried. Worried. All right. How would a partner feel? Whether you're same sex or opposite sex, how would you feel? Partners. Frustrated. 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 Inadequate. Scared. Angry. Look at this, the same feelings behind it. But words of feelings and words of genitals often get in the way. And we have to face that. This wife and husband were afraid to talk about this for a number of years and are now facing uh, talking about words. Not about feelings, but about genitals. And the reason that I do this is just so that we get sort of clear on, I'm going to use the correct names, but I'll tell you, when I work with people and start to give out information, not everybody knows the correct names. And in fact, sometimes I think we as healthcare providers give the correct names without checking out. And also, we with our partners might want to check out talking about correct names. Correct names, of course, if you went to medical school, penis, scrotum, anus. This is the perineum, kind of a nice place for men sometimes because it is the second most sensitive spot on a male body. If you stroke it sometimes, it strokes the prostate and stimulates it. Some guys like it, some guys don't. I'd ask first, okay? <laughs> Communication, right? With the first most sensitive spot being somewhere on the penis, shaft, head, coronal ridge, etc. Now, penis, scrotum, and anus. Who grew up in whose home saying that? How many of your family said that? Thank you. Was your father the physician? Healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit my money right here. The rest of us did not have penises, scrotums, and anuses. The rest of us had what? Just so we're kind of, we get the common ground that the majority of people had different words. You see, my bias is that we all grew up with very different feelings in terms of sexuality. And I was always an eye to this little kid and to me. An eye or oh, if you're from my parts of the country. A nose or mouth. This was thousands of things, which is a breast and nipple. Everybody's got them. Breasts and nipples, unless you've had them removed. And a lot of guys are very sensitive. Doesn't make them gay or bisexual. Lots of myths about that. But the rest of us did not have penises. There were actually three in mine. What was the name in your house called? Just so we get common ground. What was it called? Private. Private. Right. Do we say this is my Publix? No. Yeah. Yeah. So already, yes, they are private. Absolutely, we need to know about them. What do we have? Dick? Yes. What do we have? Tallywhackers. What do we have? Peepees. Now, can you imagine this physician coming in and talking about an erection problem about his peepee with his partner? And I have people who have come in very clearly. That is what's kept us from talking is words. Very clearly getting across words. So you're going to find Murphy Johnson, rock, cop, dick, thing, thing. Now, isn't that interesting? Thing. Would we ever say this is my thing? No, we empower children. We say thumb, wrist, elbow, hand, elbow, shoulder. Little kid knows how this works and everybody. Right here we say thing. Now, we also have one-eyed snakes, chicken necks, and zipper traps on the keys. Gotta know what you're working with right here. If you're going to be helping your patients and if you're going to be talking to yourself. Of course, scrotums are called... Nuts, balls, and family jewels. I remember that. Yeah. 
Now, nobody likes to talk about anuses, and this is not sensational. However, we all have them. The hole in the back of the body, I tell little kids. It's kind of like a car. Kind of like your Nintendo. you got to know all the parts. you got to know the names. And the hole in the back of your body is called an anus. Little kids is what I teach go, what? No, no, anus. Yes, A-N-U-S. They don't believe me. Why? Because what have we been calling them in our homes? Heine. asshole. Not the people we live with, the hole. Right. Yes, what else? What else? What else? What? Behind. We had a behind. Tushes? It was kind of everything. Now, this is very important. I will tell you, everybody in this room should know this, and if you have children, everybody should know this. The easiest way to get a sexually transmitted disease is what kind of sexual activity? Unprotected anal intercourse reception. Yes, exactly. In the easier way. Unprotected anal intercourse. Everybody should know that. But a whole lot of people don't because we get embarrassed. I have a bias. If a little kid can say elbow, a little kid can say a nuts. Two syllables, right? It has to do with our comfort. And so as we begin to deal in recovery, we begin to deal with words. And because we want need to see non-sexist crowd, female organs, the outside is called the vulva with the clitoris. Now, who heard that, vulva people? Vulva with the clitoris. Yeah. You're looking at somebody who didn't even know she had a clitoris until after the birth of her first baby. Didn't know, didn't know how it worked. Boy, was I angry when I learned they withheld those goods from me. Right, right. Well, we'll look at some things in recovery about knowledge about body, and that's the number important thing. Vulva with the clitoris. The anus, the perineum, the vagina is the inside barrel. Please call it that. Of course, the vagina is the inside. You wouldn't say this is my lungs and heart, my chest. Inside. The vagina ending at the uterus, right? Boy, no one told me all these things about my body. Anus, vulva, and clitoris. Now, did you, if you didn't have one, nobody in this room had a vulva with a clitoris. What did we have? A pussy, a twat. Yeah. All kind of furry covered animals because it's covered with pubic hair. So beavers, remember that? Yeah. Garage, as in, an 80-year-old guy told me this. A garage, as in, park the car in a garage. <laughs> We learned they were pocketbooks. And what else? Bach? Or if you're in our end of town, Southern love box, I'm told. Isn't that grand? What else? I was in Philadelphia. What What else? Honey pot. Yes. Now, can you imagine somebody coming, and there are a lot of women in recovery who have orgasm problems, and if they're only worded a partner words of honey pot, this makes it real scary to talk about. You betcha. When we get scared, we go for our guts. I was in Philadelphia, and a woman told me, she said, that it was a tween. And I said, why? And she said, because my mama said it was between my legs. Between. Between. All kinds of words. Words that offend us. Words that we get embarrassed about, my bias is, you see, we get caught in this cycle way, way before addictions in terms of addressing them. We have the improper words, or we got words that embarrass us. We got distorted information, distorted information about sex, about relationships. I'm going to give you some of mine that I think are cardinal sins as I've worked in the arena. When you grow up and when you get married and when you have children... And it will all be great if you love hard enough, pray hard enough, and work hard enough. Your partner will know what to do. These are awful, awful things to say to young people. How many of you were told any of those that I just said? Yes. When you grow up and get married, first of all, I do not believe everybody is long-term relationship material. You might be happy to hear that. I don't believe everybody. We reward a lot of people who are not able to do that. Intimacy means work, 
We're going to look at it. Intimacy means willing to be really committed and knowing the stages and working at different types of intimacies. And we'll take a look at all eight of them. Okay? Distorted information. When you get married, unless you're talking about same-sex marriages as well as opposite-sex coupling, then we're missing the mark. Because when I look in this room, here's what a sexologist sees. Don't get scared. I don't know who you are, okay? Half of you are divorced. More than half, of course, with our statistics. More than half of you are divorced or will be. And if you have children, more than half. Don't get scared. It is a fact. A fact. If I were a cardiologist, I'd be telling you heart statistics. Here's some more sexologist statistics. Three quarters of you will have a sexual problem somewhere in your life. Get prepared for them. Get ready for them. When I ask a little kid, what happens to the car? When the battery goes dead, they know exactly where to take it to. They tell me. When I ask a little kid, what happens if your penis doesn't work right or your vulva doesn't work right? They haven't the faintest idea. There are sex therapists who can help them with very solid information. So, misinformation. Let me just give you some. Three quarters of you. When my David was 46 two years ago, had a heart attack, and was diagnosed diabetic, not one physician, not one nurse ever addressed sexuality issues. This is a not a jump on your time. I'm going to ask you, please, when you're dealing with people and for yourselves, ask them about their sexuality issues with any type. If you understand diabetes, what does that mean about my David? Can't always get it out. If we thought sex had to do with one body part putting into the whole of another, we'd be very boring. Hmm. But that's often what is given through sex. Often, after his, um, after his anniversary of his first year, after his heart attack, we mailed very lovingly thanks and also information about cardiac problems and diabetes problems to the physicians and nurses, and we hope that you'll do that and talk to one another. Three quarters of you will have a sex problem somewhere in, and many, many are related to recovery. Many, as we'll go through them. About 50 to 70 percent of you fall in the heterosexual category. 50 to 70. These are Kinsey Institute statistics. That's the majority, but not everybody. About 10 to 15 percent of you are gay or lesbian. It is being a sexual minority. It's exactly what it is, a sexual minority. And if you have children, there's more than 10 kids in our family, in terms of nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, we got a, les- we got a gay or lesbian person there, a sexual minority, which leaves about, who's the statistician? 50 to 70, 10 to 15, 15 to 20 percent for bisexuality. Why are we so surprised? We've been saying this a lot. Think of that for yourself, your relationships, and your patients. Oh, by the way, one more. One more as we move into issues. About one out of six or eight of you have been infertile or are infertile. Hmm. I'm my brother and sister-in-law were one of those six or eight. Guess how they felt as sexual people. After people kept saying, whoops, we sure would love a child from you. Why don't you settle down? Most people your age have children. Guess how they felt as sexual people? Inadequate. Failures. So, as we begin to say messages, it's very important. And as we look in recovery, looking at the messages we got is very, very important. Of course, that moves us into fear, ignorance, and anxiety. Now we've got communication problems. Let's just take a look in recovery. In fact, I love to to work with people in recovery. You know why? You tell your feelings. You've been working your steps. And I appreciate that. It's scary. It's very scary to talk about sexual feelings. Let's take a look. How did we talk if we were going to have sex? Let's take a look. We're going to talk about sexuality and intimacy. How did we communicate? Well, I'm going to get down in the crowd here now. Wait a minute here. Let's take a look at David. David, you were thinking about having sex. <laughs> How did you communicate that to someone? I would tell her. You would tell her? You'd say, I want to have sex with you. 
Ah, I love it. Direct and clear. That's where were you when I was about? (laughs) Direct and clear. I never got direct and clear, David. I got somebody sitting in the movie with a hand around my shoulder trying to see as much as what they could touch. That meant I got every Friday night a clean-shaven face. I got after L.A. law, lights off, kids in bed. Ah, sexual communication. Right. I'm going to show you, David, that's about real clear. In fact, David, let me show you very direct sexual communication. Very direct. David, if I were clear, and this is sexual communication, very articulate, very bright people, we need to be talking like this. Watch. Whether you're in a relationship or not, you need to know this. David, I feel really sexy or hot or horny, whatever you want to say, okay? David, I'd like to be close. David, now tell what you want to do and what you don't want to do after you say what you're feeling. David, I feel sexual. David, I want to be close, okay? I'd be willing to hug, hold, kiss, maybe a little hand job, David. <laughs> Don't ask me to spread my leg. Too heavy tonight. Back off, back off, back off. Ask him what he feels. That is sexual negotiation. What do you think, David? <laughs> I always have people who, who are so willing to let me move into their space. Thank you very much for doing that. Wait, now how come we don't do that? That is clear sexual negotiation. Does anybody do that in this room? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to see. Before or after dinner? Well, I don't know, but I think you should be before penetration. You certainly should negotiate that. Very clearly. Now, along with that, how come we don't do that, the rest of us? So how come? Am I? Oh, socialization, those models. But we do do it. Watch, watch. David, I am starved. I am hungry. Now, I could do Chinese. Maybe a little Thai. Don't ask me to do Italian, David. Too heavy. What do you think about it? Back off, back off, back off. See, we do it. But we don't do it about sex is what we don't do it. And about scary feelings, most of us. It's very scary for me to talk like that. Why? What is our big fear? Rejection and labeling. Now, what could you all label me? And I'm sure many of you did looking at me doing this. What are you labeling? What, what could somebody label me talking to David like that? Loose. Oh, loose, right? What else? Aggressive. Aggressive. Assertive. Ballbuster or ovarybuster, depending on who you're uh, attracted to. That's right. That's right. Loose. I like this when it came from a 65-year-old woman in a condominium. She said, I can't do that. They'd call me round heels. I didn't know it. You know round heels where you roll on your back and you come up again. I have learned the most from people 65 years and older. Thank you for being there. Thank you. And in recovery, I want to tell you, liking yourself at whatever age is very important. We're going to talk about that now. One of the communication problems, after sex, after sex. What were the two most asked questions? Oh, I know. You've either been the asker or the asky. And in recovery, we got to ask different kind of questions. But what are the two? You've either been asked or asking. What are they? After sex. How was it? How was it? Terrible question. Don't answer that. Don't ask it. I would say compared to what? <laughs> don't. Don't. Don't ask that. What else? What are the other questions? Did you come? Did you come? Now, this is an awful question. Did I come? Ask generally to which gender? Female. Generally, we know if the man comes, it's called sleeping on the wet spot, if that's been your experience. <laughs> however, however, men could fake coming or ejaculating if they did not ejaculate. Some men don't. Some men from medication. Some men from addiction. Some men uh, from, like, having strokes or things can experience retrograde ejaculation. Ejaculate goes in the bladder, broken down, urinated out. Then you could fake. Now, I'm going to ask how many guys have faked desire. Any men in here have ever faked desire? 
raise your hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In recovery, it is very common, one of the problems about faking desire. How we talk about this is very important. I'm going to show you, uh, please do not ask questions like this. Please do not say, did you like it? Was I good? Oh, that's a bad one. Um, let me see if I have this. Okay, here. Was I good? Did you like it? All right. Did the earth move for you and all those kinds? Don't say that. Don't say that. What are the only two possible answers? Yes and no. But in my house, it was yes and the best. Because my mama said, if you don't have anything nice to say, Marilyn. Don't say it. So, David said, did you like it? And I said the best. Then I went to my best friend and said the worst. And then I paid the sex therapist a bunch of money. People tell me things that they are afraid often to tell their partners. Why? We're back to rejection. We need to think about all the possibilities. I'm going to ask you to do something. While you're here or when you get to home, you don't even have to be having sex. This is not way for sex. This is for intimacy. This is a process of communication. Ask these kinds of questions. Not did you like it? What did you like? What? Now, this doesn't have to be for sex. I took my little boy to see Ninja Turtles. What did you like, Adam, about the movie? What didn't you like? What would you change if you were the director? Now you're talking about the face between the ears, because you could take ten people, you pick the gender of your choice, you do something to them genitally or non-genitally, and you say, did you like it? And if they all say yes, 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 what do you know about their biggest sex organ? Nothing. And if you have a partner and you keep saying years upon years, did you like it? And the person says yes, you don't say, what did you like and what didn't? You might be making all kinds of assumptions. As I learned when I talked to my parents in their 80s, you know, I can do a lot of things now as a sex therapist, right? You know, I can say, this is for research, Mom and Dad. <laughs> so I asked about the relationship for over 40-some years, what they liked, what they didn't like, okay? My mom had said what she didn't like. My daddy said, I didn't know that. She said, you never asked. So for years upon years, please ask this way. What did you like? What didn't you like? And what would you change if we did this again or when we do this again? First of all, now, what could some feelings be, good or bad, good or bad? A yes or no answer can trap, and I might lie. But good or bad, what kind of feelings if I say, what did you like? What didn't you like? That doesn't mean you don't like me. I'm learning about your space between the ears. What kind of feelings could come up, good or bad? Honest? Could be honest feelings? Could they be scary feelings? Intimacy is scary. Recovery can be scary. But it gets better, I found, when people accept what would you like. Oh, by the way, what would you change if we did this again? You know, that'd be the scariest. The scariest answer would be, I'd change you, honey. That's right, I'd change partners, yeah. <laughs> Don't ask these things unless you perceive all the possibility of answers. Questions, would you rather know by mouth or would you rather know by behavior? Many of us have lived with people where behaviorally we knew a lot of things that people were scared to tell us. But by the way, oh wait, oh wait. What if you're, if I'm in a relationship with David or if I'm in a relationship with, what's your name? What's your name? Yes, yes. Mary Lou, if I'm in a relationship with David or Mary Lou and they gave me a list of 12 things to change, do I have to do any of them? No. Intimacy is not getting what you want. I could thank them. Thank you, David. Thank you, Mary Lou. I could look at them and say, listen, number two, uh-uh-uh-uh, fantasy city, fantasy. Yeah. Not this person. Now, number seven, maybe on your birthday. <laughs> number 17, I am willing to do. Oh, there was only 12. Well, number 12, number 12. Maybe I'm going to put in 17. I am willing to do number 12, me. Willingness, me. Don't rag on me for the rest of the eleven. 
need. I'm willing to do that. And willingness is the very first thing as we look at issues in recovery. Willingness to do this. You cannot change me if you are my partner. You cannot change me. You cannot force me, goad me, as we know in recovery. A lot of things about sexuality, too. Ask these questions. You want to get intimate? Ask them as I did to my teenage son growing up. A lot of cuties come in the house. What do you like about that person, Matthew? What don't you like? Because nobody's perfect. What would you change about the relationship if you could? You want to get more intimate? Night before he leaves for the Navy. What did you like about me as a mom for 18 years? What didn't you like about me? This is not the time to, yes, but. This is not the time to be defensive. This is the time to say thank you for being intimate. You want to do this with a partner if you have a partner here or a family member or a loved one instead of writing those, those New Year's resolutions? What you like about our relationship this year? What didn't you like? What would you change if you could? You will now have a model for intimacy. Now you can move it into sex and genitals a lot easier because you've been practicing on some other stuff. So, a little home play. If you were in my class, I'd assign this to you. A little home play. Why don't you try it? What you like? What don't you like? What would you change? And thank somebody. Remember, you do not have to change anything. As we're moving into looking at issues, of course, then we have, thank you, besides communication problems, of course we've got relationship problems. Of course. Of course, it's now understandable. We got set up. Of course, we have sexual problems. And a number of sexual problems that happen in recovery is lack of desire. In fact, it is the number one sexual problem, lack of desire. In fact, for a lot of busy people like you, two kids, two cars, two dogs working on your Ph.D. like I just finished, um, one is hardly able to seduce their selves to floss their teeth, right? Much less someone next to them. And in recovery, we're looking for a different kind of high. If you're looking for the orgasm or the ejaculation that you had with any kind of addictive behavior, stop. It's not going to be the same. Don't look for that one. It's going to be a new kind of orgasmic, not only an orgasm sexually, but an orgasm physically and spiritually. We're going to talk a little bit about orgasms. It is letting go. And isn't that something about spirituality? Letting go and letting God. An orgasm problem is often about letting go, like spirituality. Around it. Lack of desire. One does not start, though, if saying, I want to build desire. One does not start here with sex. We're going to see genital sex. It starts with a lot of talking and sharing and a lot of knowing of the body. Did you ever notice that God gave you much more skin surface than holes? Did you ever notice that? It is a clue. It is a clue about sex. It is a clue about sexuality. It is a clue about bodies. It is also a clue if you're interested in safer sex because it is a skin surface that are very safe. It's when you mess around with holes without any protection. That's unsafe. All right. Now, we got communication problems, we got relationship problems, and sexual problems. The most, the average problem for most men in recovery has to do with desire, because it's not the same. It has to do with erection, getting them, maintaining them, or using them. And if you were like my wonderful um, partner on our wedding night here, didn't know how to deal with it. People usually do the wrong thing. I'm just going to tell you the wrong thing. People usually do when men can't get erections. What they usually do is they jump on penises by mouth and hand. It's the wrong thing. Wrong thing. Don't do that. What you do is you stay away. And you do some wonderful thing called outer course. In my business, it's called outer course. As opposed to intercourse, right? Outer course is what we used to call foreplay. Sort of like saying that wasn't the real thing. This is the real thing, outer course. And for lots of people in recovery, that kind of outer course is very important. We'll go through the process in a few minutes. Most sexual problems also for men have to do with ejaculation, rapid ejaculation, or delayed ejaculation. Now, a whole lot of men go, delayed. Boy, would I love to have it with delayed ejaculation. You wouldn't if it was painful. 
And if you wanted to ejaculate, or if your partner did, there are all kinds of things that can happen in terms of sex therapy and all kinds of uh, suggestions and ideas and activities for partners. For most women in recovery, lack of desire, fright, um, any kind of lubrication problems, also orgasm problems, pain, pain upon touch, pain upon thrusting, pain upon intercourse, pain, as well as um, any kind of aversion because we're getting clear, we're getting clean with not only from drugs, alcohol, addictive behaviors, but with our body as we're going to start. Now, addictions is up here, and I'm not here to say, um, to debate what causes addictions, but I truly know when it's, I want to, I want to give you a, um, a definition of intimacy, okay? This is not for me, this is from Webster. By the way, do you ever do something your parents used to do and you swore you'd never do? Never, never, anybody do that? Yeah, yeah, well, look at that. Now, my daddy used to read two books, the Bible and the dictionary. And as I get to be middle-aged, which I love being, um, I'm getting back to reading the dictionary. I always did read the Bible, so here we go. Intimate, this is Webster, but I want to show you something about how we get set up. And in recovery, it's very important to take a look at how we get set up. Pertaining to the inmost character of something, the most fundamental, the essential part. How many of you grew up in a home? Um, for my dad, my daddy is an alcoholic. He used to drink after church. He used to drink after meetings. We thought that was what ministers did. We thought there was nothing, no problem with it. Until we learned he also had drinks behind the pulpit. And then in, in retirement, guess what? The drinking increased and increased and increased. We did our family intervention. And in growing up, I learned some things about how I was not told to learn my most fundamental and most essential thing. I'm really glad to see those of you who are physicians in recovery because according to my doctor, you're, or according to my daddy, you're the closest thing to, to uh, clergy people. Not there, but close. If anybody's going to get him those models, you are, so thank you. All right, now, what are we told about telling our most fundamental thing? Don't. Did you grow up in a home where it was said, tell what you feel, identify your most important feelings and tell it? Anybody grew up in there? So right off the bat, we got set up for intimacy. Take a look. I want you, when we get to the sex part, I want you to look at what it says in Webster's. Most private or personal feelings. How many of us got a chance to tell our most private or personal feelings? Some of us might, but many of us haven't. Many of us. Very familiar. Closely associated. Very familiar. Closely associated as a, an intimate friend. Promoting feelings of privacy, like an intimate restaurant or an intimate group. Kind of like this group, right? Resulting from careful study and intimate investigation. Here's the one about sex. Can you believe this? Webster, 1989. Having illicit sexual relationships. Illicit. Can't believe that got passed. All of those people look at this book. What does illicit mean? Wrong? Illegal? What does it bring up? Shame? Guilt? My God, we've got enough shame and guilt going from uh, all of us and looking at our recovery feelings. Intimare, Latin, to make known. This is where we show up for Latin. To make known. In order for me to be intimate, to make known and to announce, what do I have to know? Me. I am intimate with me first, before someone else. My feelings. Intimare. I am going to show you some barriers to intimacy, and we have a group in Miami who's working on this. First of all, recovery makes intimacy possible, but recovery does not guarantee intimacy. Keeping clean and sober makes it possible, 
but it does not guarantee intimacy. All right? It takes only one person to start it. And if you decide to do that, remember your partner or your or your loved one may not want to do it. It is their right. But the ball is back in your court and you have a decision to make. The ultimate barrier is our habit of thought and belief. The ultimate barrier to intimacy is what we used to do. What we used to do. That was the barrier. So we have to look at feelings of old behaviors, old feelings, power, control, anger. Now, I'm going to show you about eight barriers and we'll talk about sex and intimacies. The first one. Very number one, you cannot be intimate in active addiction or codependency. You can't, or you can have sex, and you can be in a relationship, but you can't enjoy the sexuality, the orgasm that combines emotional and physical, remember with the heart in between, and sharing intimacy. The group said, don't merge with the craziness of someone else. This is a warning. Look at our own lives. We like to look at our own lives before trying to look at other people's lives. The second barrier. The second barrier had to do with honest self-knowledge. It's when we in our relationships would have integrity lapses, like, I'll tell you what I'm thinking, but I won't tell my partner. Oh, I'll be honest here at home, but when I'm at a conference, like the IDAA, oh. See, integrity lapses here. Lots of times that means we have values confusion, because we have different values to different people or in different situations. Lack of boundaries, and in recovery we're looking at that. Lack of boundaries so that I know what my feelings are, and I'm taking care of me, and you tell me your feelings, and we negotiate them. The fourth and fifth steps are very difficult if I have do not have honest self-knowledge. And for a lot of people who were very confused and did not want to face up to things that they were doing or feeling or thinking around sexuality, it results in a tyranny, tyranny of ego many times, or the doormat syndromes. Both of those have low self-esteem behind it and the scariness. Barrier number three. Barrier number three. A lot of myths about communication. I showed you one model of communication, of sexual negotiation. Communication about talking about how we feel in sex. Do you know I found some people don't like sex? They do it. Why did we do it? Supposed to. Why did we do it? Duty. Thank you. Why did we do it? He wanted it. Why did we do it? She wanted it. Why did we do it? It would mean I'm frigid. Why did we do it? They go and have sex somewhere else. It's extraordinary when I take sex histories in this process why people are doing things but not telling. Why is it? Why is it that we didn't say when something hurt? Let me ask a question. How many of people here have done sex, done sex, when it was painful? Raise your hand. Yes, men and women have done. Why did we have sex when it's painful? Now, why? Yeah, we were afraid. We were afraid. A prime example for me was how many times did I have intercourse when I had vaginitis, right? Vaginitis, infection in the vagina. Do you know what it's like to do thrusting when you have vaginitis? It hurts. It hurts. So why didn't I say, listen, I'm really scared to tell you this, but you know what? This is scary. This is hurtful. Could we do sex in a different way? Because I really want to do sex. Why didn't this articulate, intelligent woman do that? Because behind it was shame and guilt, and I was afraid that I would be rejected, and that person wouldn't like me if I really said who I really was. And isn't that behind a lot of our feelings that caused addictive behaviors? Models, fears, mind readings. Here's another one. I'm going to ask the group, how many of you would love to have your partner read your mind? Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> they should know by now. It's been 15 years. 
don't you know this after 25 years we've been together? Of course, we'd love people to read our minds. But in recovery, also, things change. And number one, number one, unless you are interested in being with a comatose person, person changes their mind. That's why you ask, what did you like, what didn't you like, and what would you change? And I would ask it regularly. And in recovery, things change. In recovery, you get a different breathing cycle, as we chart people at. You get a different eating cycle in recovery. You get a different bowel and bladder cycle. You get a different sex response cycle. We're going to get to the sex response cycle in recovery. Very exciting to chart it out and to include it and to talk about it. People can't read your mind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We need to say what they are. And pat answers. The other thing that happens in sex communication and intimate communication is pat answer. Let's just ask a question. What are some of your pat answers you just hate? You just hate a partner to say or an intimate or loved one to say? You got to say it loud so I can hear it. Not now. Oh, not now, honey. I got a headache. <laughs> yes. Might want to take that's one he hates the most. How about I understand? Lots of times people, I find people don't. If they say, okay, thank you for telling me. Maybe else have a pat answer that they hate. A lot of people do. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. But I'm not fine now. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I want to talk about. A lot of people have pat answers or pat behaviors. Ask a partner, is there an answer or a behavior of mine in our sex or intimate life that's really grating? Or that you don't like, you might be surprised. It may not be grating to you. Or just express yourself. If I could have expressed myself, I wouldn't have had to sit in front of a therapist in order to learn how to do that, okay? Emotional dumping is not always good to partners when they're ready, when it's time, or if you're meeting people. How many of you in recovery needed a chance or found every time you met somebody you wanted to tell your story like, ah, it all came out, yes. In meetings like this, it might be fine. But as we begin to meet people in recovery, they may not always want to know or hear. Disclosing information. In recovery, as we're beginning to look at our past and beginning to look at our lives, there's a lot of disclosing. Not only sex problems, disclosing could be. I did a lot of sex with different people. Disclosing could be. I did a lot of drugs and alcohol. Disclosing could be. I have HIV in my body. Disclosing could be. I was sexually exploited. Disclosing could be. I'm really scared because I don't feel that passion that I really want to feel with you. Interesting. How many of us learn? This is really interesting. How many of us know when we look at somebody in recovery, how many of us know that the first person we're attracted to is generally not the best person for us in, in a relationship? Yes. Isn't that weird? Now, this is not fair, right? Right? The first person I'm generally attracted to is probably, I'll bet, an emotionally unavailable person. And I learned to trust that. Learn to trust that. So probably the person who's the best intimate for me is not going to be that chemical attraction. And in fact, over time, intimacy is not about this necessarily. In fact, I find intimacy is more like this. More like this. More like this. Rather than we're together at all times. Okay, let's take a look at the next one. Next barrier. Next barrier is about the past. The past. And for many of us in recovery, we look at transcending the past and looking at messages. All girls should and all girls shouldn't in sex. Let's just take a few of them. It's also transcending the past and exploitation. If you have been sexually exploited, it is very difficult to be intimate. 
And I would encourage you to look at that. I am really delighted to see videos like Wendy Maltz's, if you haven't seen it, it is called Partners in Healing. It is about couples who, after looking about incest and sexual exploitation, are now looking at the sex part of their lives. The sex part of their lives. People who, who are fearing abandonment. And many of us did stay in relationships because we're so scared of being alone. Because I was taught women need a man to take care of them. Therefore, how many of us got into relationships? Let's take a look at some of these messages about sex because that has a lot to do with that. Messages. And then we're going to get to the eight types of intimacies. Now, when I was growing up, I didn't know that my sexual identity was about the following. About the following. My sexual identity. It was about my body. This is the four things we all have in common. Our body, biology, our gender identity, our gender role, and our sexual orientation. We all have that alike, but in between all of those are a wonderful tapestry of differences. And in recovery, those are important to find out. Our body. It's important to start there. Sexuality issues in recovery does not start between my legs. It starts by me getting real centered on my body. I would encourage you to do body work. Absolutely. Get to become friends with your body. We have a lot of people who do body work and who do things with their body, not only the exercising and the yogas, which is great and that's wonderful, but the body image work. Talk about, think about your body. I was a skinny kid with this lower dose of the spine. Still have it. Now in sixth grade, this guy named Richard would go around the class going, I believed Richard. Then I went to college and they said, oh, nice ass. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Richard knew. Richard knew it was bustle buds. I had a lot of work to do on body image. As I grew older and had a breast biopsy, I had another piece of work to do on body image. You see, bodies change. I invite you to become friends with yours. Body image, body work, body looking with a partner, seeing what your body can do, challenging your body, doing what your body is afraid. Remember, it's a course inside your mind. Mine was white water rafting. My body was keeping me from that. Many of our bodies keep us from enjoying sex, too, because we are looking for that same high or because we are frightened or because we're ashamed. All kinds of reasons. Body work. Start here. Oh, by the way, it also includes genitals. I'm going to ask you to make friends with your genitals. That is not for sensationalism or not for masturbation. Fine, you can do that. But it is for integration because in recovery, if I did not become friends with my genitals, guess what? They're out here. They're not connected. And I will give my power away to someone else. So in recovery, I have to connect them. I like them. I'll invite you to go home for you to take a look at your genitals. Become friends. I guarantee, and I'm going to talk about women because I'm women, but I imagine men do too. Men handle their genitals more, you know, in urinating, putting on your pants, adjusting them. I've seen you. <laughs> women don't adjust their clitorises, although that's really what it's like. Now... More women know about every little line and men too on their face. More women will look at every gray hair. More women look at baby overhang or breasts that don't stand up like they used to. You know, because people are getting tummy tucks and butt tucks and all those things. I want you to get kind of comfortable. Here, start here. Healthy sexuality recovery is me liking my body. This 43-year-old, two-baby-bodied, breast biopsy body, still lower doses of the spine body. And please tell your age. I have a bias. I have a bias. If I do not say I'm 43 and like who I am, what does that say to the 23-year-old young woman who's coming up? What does it say? 
Bad to be 43. You don't want to be like me. You want to keep looking over there. I am never going to be 20 again. I am not looking at 20-year-old women or even 30-year-old women. You know who I'm looking at in the audience? 60 and 50 and 70-year-old women. I'm watching you. I need a model. I need a model of you in recovery. I need for you to say, I'm 53, I'm 63, I'm 73, and I like who I am. I need that. And the young men need it from the males in the audience. Please tell how old you are. Please start with your body. Then you move to gender identity. Nobody told me, how do you like being a male? How do you like being a female? What do you like about it? What do a lot of women not like about? What don't a lot of women like? Having their menstrual periods, they tell me. Yeah. Guess what? Many of us love our menstrual cycles. Guess why? Many of us love the arrival of our periods. Guess why? Yeah, because that's when some of our sex response cycles go. Get really excited right before or during. Maybe some of you in the audience experience that. And some partners really love that, too. For some, it's not that way, okay? What do you like about being a man? What do you like about being a woman? Share that. In recovery, look at that. What do you like and what don't you like? And share that. Now, here's the biggie. Messages. Messages that are given to us regarding masculine and feminine. It is what has locked us in addictive cycles many, many times. I work a lot of messages with people in recovery. The ones that said all women shouldn't. All women shouldn't. All boys should and all boys shouldn't. Oh, these are biggies. These are biggies. And they have to do with the following. In recovery, we look at these issues. What did we learn? And what are we still struggling with? Appearance, mannerisms, speech, interests, habits, sex, dating, relationships. My mama told me you always wear a dress. She'd have been proud of me today. But I feel just as feminine in a t-shirt and no makeup and no jewelry. Just as feminine. But I have to. If I do presentations, and sometimes I do, in t-shirt and boots and uh, no makeup, guess what I get labeled? Hmm. Tomboy? Dyke? Not feminine? Hmm. You see, I'm the same person, and I feel the same inside. It has to do with messages we believe, and in recovery, messages. You have to have a drink before you have sex. It loosens you up. Hmm. Messages about sex. Always wait for the man to do something. He'll know what to do. First of all, what if I'm not interested in men? And second of all, a penis person will never know a vulva person like I do. This vulva person, ever, sorry. And if you're interested in same sex, a same sex person will never know the space between the ears like you do. And in recovery, it may shift and change and may need to be told. Let's just take a look at some of them that would have to be addressed. Which are ones that you struggle with the most now in sex? Just think about it. Think about it for yourself. I got you should have sex when your partner wants it. I got that. If you didn't, what was the label? Frigid. I don't like that label. Don't call women frigid. They're not frigid. They do have feelings. Frigid means you don't have feelings. Generally, there's a whole lot of feelings. That's why they often don't want to have sex, right? And what are men called when they have erection problems? I don't like this word either. Impotent. Now, I work with an Impotence Anonymous group. I hate that name, though. I hate the name. Impotent means weak. If you guys have an erection problem, it does not mean you're weak. It means you've got an erection problem. You need to look at it. Could be physical. Could be emotional. Could be stuff from the medications. Could be stuff happening in recovery. There's options and things to look at for all of them. What was the messages you got about sex? Let me just take a few of them. What were they? Shout them out. Save it to marriage. What if I don't get married? What do I do with my jumping estrogen? 
Masturbate. Masturbate. I wasn't told that. I was told I was the the one that had the hands outside of the covers. It was a sin. My parents put my hands outside the covers. I thought that was how people slept. My parents and I joke about this now. But I learned when that jumping yesterday didn't happen, even though my hands were out of the covers, I learned to squeeze legs, cross thighs, use furry objects, climb poles, ride horses. Look, my no hands. <laughs> you see, people do respond to their jumping estrogen, and I felt very guilty, and of course got into addictive behaviors because guilt oftentimes does that. So what'd you get? What big message about sex did you get? Dirty. Of course. In recovery, I would have to take a look at what did I believe about sex being dirty? I don't believe God put a dirty part on my body, and that includes anus, vulva, vagina, or clitoris. But in order for me to believe it, I had to go through a process, a long process of me with my body, not someone else, not someone else, because I didn't believe that person. I had to work with me and my body first. What other message? Don't enjoy it. Don't enjoy it. Right. What we're supposed to do? Freeze. Freeze. If we went through exploitation, we'd probably frozen anyway. Don't enjoy it means I have to begin to enjoy myself, my body, nurturing myself. By the way, if you've been through exploitation, no one else is going to unfreeze as much as you unfreeze. So we have a lot of people who are nurturing themselves. I got the message, don't spend time on yourself, it's selfish. But I learned that the person who unfreezes me is me. Ever before I allow another person to come into that space, to do that nurturing touch. Three kinds of touches, by the way, three kinds. One's a clinical touch. Probably a lot of you physicians do that, clinically touching. Second, second kind of touch is a playful touch. A lot of people can do that in learning about ourselves. Playful touch. Third kind of touch is erotic touch. Erotic touch. And we've got keys all on our body. Keys on our body. I got the sex organs or should be touched like this. Oh, this one first, sorry. That's what I got. A whole part of our body was missing. In fact, I'm going to ask the audience, when we work with people in dysfunction, whether it's in recovery or not, there are keys on your body that help in move you into relaxation and also may increase the sex response cycle. Tell me a part of your body that would be real important to spend time on before sex. What? Ears. Near man. I love it. Yes. What else? Pardon me? Kissing where? Kissing the lips. Okay. Be very important. What else? Neck. Fingers. What else? Legs. Haven't gotten to mine yet. What else? Nipples? Yeah, but wait. Let's forget genitals and for a while here. Hold on. What else? Feet. 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 How many are feet people? Come on. Yeah, see? How would you... What? Skin. All over skin. You haven't gotten to mine yet. Mine is face. Now, face. Some days I would just die for face. Forget sex. Just face. Because it's the relaxing part. We find there are keys. Everybody in this room is a little bit different in terms of their sex response cycle. Touching and nurturing touch, find that out. And may be important for the sex response cycle. Looking at messages are very important. In recovery, for a lot of us, we found about our sexual orientation. Our sexual orientation is whether we're heterosexual, homosexual, and bisexual. And remember, bisexual people are either in same-sex relationships or opposite-sex relationships. So don't be surprised if your partner is bisexual. Question, can I be heterosexual and be monogamous? Can I be heterosexual and be monogamous? Yes. Could I be gay or lesbian and be monogamous? Yes. Could I be bisexual and be monogamous? Yes. Yes. I could be attracted to men in the room, but not do anything. Well, first of all, I am attracted because I'm not dead. I'm not comatose. You're going to be attracted. All right? But I could be attracted to men or women or both, but not do anything here. 
because I have made this pledge of monogamy. Do you see? It has to do with internal feelings. And whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual, it is an internal feeling that may or may not be expressed. It's got to do with fantasy, behavior, attraction, your social connection, your emotional connection, how you feel or think, how you self-identify, and what your lifestyle looks like. It's very complex. And in recovery, many of us find that we have been, the goods have been withheld. And that part of the addiction cycle had to do with we needed more information. By the way, if you ever ask a partner that, be prepared. Why is it that somebody could not come up and say, hello, I'm Marilyn and I'm bisexual to somebody? Why? Why? It would make them crazy, shame and guilt. Not acceptable. Why? Because we didn't get to whom? Yes, because we didn't get it this high. And that's why, before we go into the last few barriers, I have said something very different to my children. I'm not expecting you to, but I can no longer withhold the goods because I have to sleep at night because I work with many people in recovery as adults whose goods are withheld. It's like this. We're looking at Sesame Street. He's about five. He's going to marry her, Mommy. Maybe. Boys marry girls, Mommy. Sometimes. My teacher said, boys marry girls. Uh-oh, it's the teacher against the mother. Don't get caught in this trap ever, ever, ever. Remember, parents are down at the bottom. I know your teacher may think that, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. You see, in intimacy, no one can take away what you believe. I believe there's a lot of different people, Matthew. Big people and little people and fat people and skinny people. And you know what? They're different colored people. Some people live by themselves. And some people live with another person. And some people get married. And some people have children. And some people don't want children. And some people can't have children. And some people love people when they grow up like men with men, women with women, or both. He's five. He's confused. Does he understand everything? No. But he doesn't understand everything when he says, how do airplanes fly, mommy? And I tell him basic aerodynamics either. The message is, mommy will talk. Mommy will say. And this is the most important part we found out in the research and for people in recovery. This is the most important part. Adam, I am going to love you if you are by yourself, single, or if you get married. I'm going to love you if you have children or you don't have children. I'm going to love you if you love men or women or both. I am going to love you. I hope you tell the truth. Because we find more people lie than tell the truth, particularly the people that they want to know the most. Scary? Oh, yes. About giving up control and power. It's about being intimate. Now, this is an extraordinary tapestry of who we are. I would invite you to look at it in recovery. All of these issues of your biology, your body, your gender, and how you feel about yourself. Addressing those messages, and absolutely you would have to be willing to be labeled. The scariest label, if you told the truth. Think about the scariest label. Because I would have to think about that. You would have to think about that in order to be honest. By the way, the scariest label for me was not bitch, which a lot of women, or not sissy, which a lot of men get called. My scariest label was unchristian. See, I grew up in that. The scariest label for me was unchristian, and I had to face it a lot, a lot. Now, I learned that Christian people are sexual and intimate people, too. Isn't that great? And Jewish people and Buddhists. All right, life strain. Take a look at the roles. Now, you all have roles as you have a role sometime as a man or a woman or a physician or a mom or a dad or a sister or a teacher or anything role. And that gets in the way of our intimacy, our perceived roles, how we think they impact the person around us. We need to talk about them. And, in fact, I will tell you when I stood in a therapist's office or sat for months and months and months, 
And she wanted to know what Marilyn thought, what Marilyn needed, intimacy needs, because I'm getting to the eight ones. If you're getting antsy, we're getting to them right now. I didn't know there were eight intimacies needs. She said, what does Marilyn need? I didn't know, and it was very scary. Oh, I knew what the minister's daughter should do, meeting needs. I knew what the minister's wife should do, meeting needs. I knew what the teacher should do, meeting needs, but I didn't know a thing about Marilyn. And in my recovery process, I absolutely learned a lot of things. Thank God and goddesses about that. Intimacy. Let's take a look right here. I'm going to show you eight different kinds of intimacy. Now, when I was growing up, intimacy meant what? Sex. Boy, am I glad somebody told me this right here. Look. And in recovery, this is very important to look at. These eight different types of intimacies. They have been researched, and I'd like for you to take a look at them. This is the eight different types of intimacies. There might be more. I'm going to use these eight. But affectional intimacy, it means liking somebody. Do you know how many people live with people they don't like? Do you know how many people have sex with people they do not like? Wow, and taking sex histories, that's interesting to me. Now, social intimacy. Social intimacy means doing something together. Socially. All right? You don't have to have sex with somebody you like or do something socially with. Physical intimacy. Wait, it's not sex. Physical intimacy means doing a focused activity together. Focused. Like working on the house. Like building something. Like some kind of activity. Basketball, baseball. Aesthetic. Sharing something beautiful. Aesthetic. Beautiful sharing with a person. Intellectual. That means a cognitive bonding. In my house, there's a joke. If it's not about sex or AIDS, don't ask mom. She won't know. That is not true. I can talk about lots of other things. Not as passionately, but intellect. Emotional. Who do you go to when you're really hurting or when you're really high or the real feelings? Emotional intimacy. Do you know how many people have sex with somebody and then don't tell them their real feelings or go to somebody else? It's very interesting to see. A sexual. Now this, for this activity we're going to do, by this time I am sure you must know that I think sex has more to do with holes on your body, right? Sex has to do with the whole parts of your body, all right? Now, spiritual. A spiritual connection. Now, question. I have a question. Do you think you can get all eight from one person? No, yes, maybe. I love it. Very definite people, right? We got, we got all of the, all the positives. There are some very definite no's, some very definite yes, and some very definite maybes. All right. Matt, you could rotate. Yes, you could rotate. Yes, some people have rotated. As a matter of fact, they didn't know what they were doing. They were rotating. Yes, yes. Now, the question is, do you get yours when you need them? Now, if you got 4.5, I'm going to give you 5. According to the research, 4.5. Let's do 5. If you got your top 5, you'd be in a very good relationship. But do you know your top 5? In recovery, it got it was furry, furry, fuzzy, and blurry. All right, let's look at them. I'm going to have you raise your hands five times. This is a values clarification. I know you want everything. I know for those of us who are addicts, where it's like all or nothing, right? All or nothing, right? But we only got five, five. Values clarification. All right, watch. How many of you would absolutely have to like the person you were going to be in a close relationship with? Raise your hand if that's one of your top five, okay? It's not a test. You can change your mind tomorrow. Remember? It's okay. All right. How many of you need social intimacy? You need to do something socially as well. All right. How many of you need a physical, like like a focused activity together with that person? If you have raised your hands three times in one sex, you've got two more choices, right? Okay. Now, how many of you need to share something beautiful as one of your top five? All right, this is tough. One, two, three, four, round fifth one. How many of you need an intellectual bonding, a cognitive bonding with that person? 
The rest of us are going to the library, right? Okay, all right. Now, emotional. How many of you need to go and tell that person your feelings? Okay. How many of you need sex? Yeah, a lot of people do. It is not on everybody's top five. In fact, it's not on everybody's top ten. In fact, if two people decided they wanted a relationship and shared other things and didn't have sex, that is quite okay. It's quite okay. The problem is when one person wants and one person doesn't, or one person wants more and one person doesn't want less, now you got to negotiate, okay? Now, how many of you need a spiritual connection? Yeah. Now the question is, when do you find this out? When? When do you talk about this? When? Do you say, hello, I'm Marilyn, and here's my top five checked off? <laughs> I personally think it's better than saying, hello, I'm Marilyn, and I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> Isn't that what we say when we meet people and sort of hope they get our top five, you know? That's what we're talking about. We have to be clear here. By the way, by the way, if you know your top five, and you are in an intimate relationship, and that doesn't mean only sex to me, does a partner know your top five? Are they willing to give them to you. And by the way, do you know your partner's top five? And are you willing and can you? I found people don't always get what they want all the time, but if a partner knows, it's kind of like this. You know, sometimes we can do it and sometimes we can't. Sometimes we're there and sometimes we can't. That's more about intimacy, but knowing the top five and negotiating are very, very important. Eight kinds of intimacy. Stick around. There's five stages in relationships. We're almost done. Now, actually, we're almost just beginning. Barrier number six. It's about damaged trust. How many people in this room have been damaged by when you trusted somebody and they did not meet your expectation? How many of your trust has been damaged? Sure. Some of us more severely than others. Now, there are three types of trusts. And in recovery, we need to know about them because they're going to be barriers to our intimacy. One. One is blind trust. This is blind trust. Oh, this relationship is so great. We're both in recovery. It's going to work out real fine. Line trust. We're both alcoholics or we're both Catholics or we're both in SLAA. Line trust. All right? But we're both physicians. Oh, <laughs> Now, diligent distrust looks like this. I'm never going to get close to anybody. I have had five dead marriages. Nobody's going to get close. Well, of course they won't. Diligent distrust here. All right? Maybe it'll be easier to be a lesbian. Maybe I should be that. Hmm, hmm. Okay? Some people have asked to change. All right? By the way, a note about change. People can do behaviors. They can't change. Inside feelings, okay? Inside. We're talking about all those steps in terms of who you're attracted to or who you think about. Vigilant trust. Vigilant trust. That is very important. Vigilant trust. Vigilant trust means I must be trustworthy, and you earn my trust, and I earn your trust. Can you tell me one thing? I'm going to ask somebody. Give me an example. Don't just say, trust me. Oh, I hate That's my pet answer. I hate that. Don't say, trust me. Uh-uh. I am a vigilant trust person. But I need to know what I must do to gain your trust. That is one behavioral thing I must do. Does anybody know real clearly what I must do to gain your trust? Anybody? Okay, what is it? Don't what? Don't lie. Don't lie. Oh, well, let's go down here. Be trustful. See, I have to have a behavior. If you just said be trustful, maybe being trustful to me is bringing home the paycheck to you every week. See? Maybe I think that. But right here, you two said the same thing. What would you say? Don't lie. Don't lie. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. I have to clarify. This is now intimate clarification. Don't lie, they said. Now, a lot of people say that. The, the thing is, you want me to tell the truth, right? Yeah. Always? Or what? Say it again. You can conceal 
Oh, now wait. Now this is interesting. Claire, Claire, I'm going to hold on just a minute. Now say it again. Uh, conceal if you need to, but don't lie. Okay. All right. Conceal, but don't lie. Okay. Do you want that? Now wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. How can I change? Ron, Ron. Ronald, what do you think? No, I, I don't want you to lie at all. Oh, now see, see, this is real important. You want everything, even if I think that is the ugliest shirt in the world, Ron. Yes. Yes. You don't want me to, you want me to, to say everything. All right. Now, see, we have two different points of view, which is very important for intimacy. You have to know how you want me to be honest. Do you want me to tell you about everything I'm thinking? Do you want me to tell you about everybody I am attracted to, Ron? Yeah. I'm going to conceal with Claire. I know, I know that from her already, but you tell me, you want me to tell you everybody I'm attracted to? No. no. When would you want me to tell you that? If you're thinking about uh, leaving you. If you're, if I'm thinking about leaving you, I would want me to tell you. Okay, I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you that. The reason is honesty is a real interesting. It's a real. How many of you would like a partner to be a hundred percent? I mean, one hundred percent honest. Raise your hand. One hundred percent means telling it when it hurts, telling every dirty little detail, telling every time they think. Not too many people want. I hear be honest a lot. But I don't hear a lot be a hundred percent. Now we have to clarify. Okay. And this is about trust in talking about how you want to be a trustful person. Tell a partner what that means. A lot of times I work with couples. One person says, but I am being trustful. And the other one says, not according to my standards. All right. Now we're going to look at sex. Sex, sex does not mean you're intimate. And being clean and sober does not mean you have good sex or good intimacy. When we look at, here's the sex response cycle. And in recovery, you need to look at this, just like breathing and eating. Here's the excitement stage, which can take two minutes or two years, depending on where we're at. Here's the plateau stage. This is the Masters and Johnson's model. Plateau stage, we're really riding high. Feels great. Then there's orgasm, muscle contraction. In sports, we call it Charlie horses, cramps, you know, orgasm. Often for men, it's accompanied by ejaculation, but may not. It's a two-stage experience. And then there's revolution, which means how you feel about after. What does this look like? What does this look like? Does it often look like drug, alcohol, addiction cycle? Often looks very similar. It also looks like, to me, a spiritual response cycle. The desire to get to know spirituality, the kinds of moments of feeling spiritual, the letting go and letting God. Orgasm and ejaculation is letting go of power and control, even for a very small amount of trusting. That's why when I talk about orgasms with God, I really mean that letting go. A lot of people get insulted. I see it as a very similar way. Then how we feel after. For many of us, we felt quite bad and shameful because a lot of what we did was an addictive behavior sexually. Healthy sexuality that is expressed does not mean we have the big O together, mutual orgasms. It means if orgasms happen, that's fine. If it doesn't, it doesn't. In fact, I have a bias. If you must, if you think the goal of sex has to do with getting lubricated and erect and penetration, erect can be clitorally or penally, um, and having some kind of orgasm or ejaculation, I think you're going to set yourself up to fail because that may not happen all the time. process for me, I had to look at a lot of expectations that were very romantic. That were fantasy. Oh, fantasy is one stage. In fact, I had to look at the expectations and really the everyday experiences and learn new models. To risk despair. To love is to risk rejection. To laugh 
is to risk being a fool. To weep is to risk being sentimental. To dream is to risk appearing naive. To share is to risk vulnerability. To reach out is to risk involvement. But the greatest risk in life is to risk nothing at all. When you walk out the door, may I ask you to do a safe risk. A safe risk is about sharing. A safe but vulnerable risk of saying, I want to work on this for myself first and with someone else. A safe risk is saying, here's what I learned at this conference. A safe risk is going home and talking to our kids and grandkids and neighbors about recovery and sexuality. And of course, if you're involved in sex with somebody who absolutely cannot guarantee about what's in her, happy sexuality, happy intimacy. God bless you.